0: This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, covering our books on the environment, politics, religion, history, law, and biography. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Sean M. Kelly, author of American Slavers, Merchants, Mariners, and the Transatlantic Commerce in Captives, 1644 to 1865. John M. Kelly is professor of history at the University of Essex. He is the author of The Voyage of the Slave Ship Hare, A Journey into Captivity from Sierra Leone to South Carolina, and Los Brazos de Dios, A Plantation Society in the Texas Borderlands, 1821 to 1865. In this new book with Yale University Press, Kelly uses exhaustive archival research, including many collections that have never been used before to argue that slave trading needs to be seen as integral to the larger story of American slavery. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Claire. In the introduction to the book, you outline dominant narratives surrounding the global slave trade, such as the triangular trade route, in addition to Americans' propensity to blame the majority of routes in and out on other slaving nations, such as Britain. Can you talk more about these dominant narratives and the book's intervention into this academic discussion?
1: Certainly. So one of the things that uh, struck me when I was um, first getting ready to do this book, in fact, maybe the reason why I was getting ready to do this book was this feeling that, um, that this was a story that just had not been Old, that a lot of Americans and a lot of Americanists, and I'm talking about, uh, you know, professional, excellent, you know, historians, simply didn't know uh, about this. Um, and one of the things I mentioned in the book is that I, I remember very well my own high school teacher telling me uh, that, us, that uh, Americans hadn't been involved in the slave trade, that this had been something that was somehow uh, f- almost foisted uh, on Americans uh, by the British. And um, so uh, I, I should also say that you know I did a, I did a whole PhD uh, in the history of slavery, uh, and uh, and the uh, in not just in the United States, the Brazil and the Caribbean. And through it all, there was nothing in there. I never read a single book on the American slave trade. You know, so I I, I kind of carried this idea with me for a long time until I finally actually wrote a book about an American slave ship and at that point it became obvious to me that a lot of this was wrong but I realized that a lot of people that I talked to and I'm here I'm thinking about you know well-informed people uh, academics even in the field just kind of had no idea about this and I've always said it's I think probably a big reason for this is that unlike American slavery itself which took place right uh you know within the the boundaries of the United States it was it was right there it was it's it's a central part of American history uh what I'm talking about in the book uh the vast majority of that took place outside of the United States uh, in Africa or in the Caribbean some of it took you know American slave ships did sometimes uh, carry captives to the United States but most of them didn't and I think this basically meant that the, the whole episode kind of escaped uh, the consciousness of people. Um, and so if you look at the the, the, the historiographic, you know, uh, trajectory of all of this, there had actually been a time when people, um, or say earlier in the 20th century, a lot of historians, you know, w- believed that Americans had been very involved in the transatlantic slave trade. There always been sort of this lore about, uh, you know, New england rum ships going to Africa. Um, and they, they kind of naturally assumed that these same ships that American ships very naturally carried captives to uh, North America. Turns out generally not to be the case. Um, but then, then there was a kind of a revisionist twist to all of this that came in the 1970s um, that just sort of shifted things you know, far to the other side of the debate and, and, and began kind of, it, it was a, I guess it was sort of a round of debunking uh, you know, certain myths and one of the myths they took aim at was this, uh, this American slave trade. Um, so in the 1970s, you get a whole lot of uh, you know, articles mostly just questioning uh, you know, that. So um, uh, we had some books on it, The uh, absolutely fantastic book by Jay Cautry uh, called The Notorious Triangle, did a lot, but uh, that book's been out of print for decades. Um, in fact, I always called it the best book on American slavery that nobody seems to have read um, but uh, and so in, in a lot of ways, you know, what I was trying to do in the book is is just set the record straight to kind of uh, and, and, and sort of write the the, the full history of this uh, two hundred year um, engagement in the slave trade.
0: Thank you. Yes, I think that the the phrase "out of sight, out of mind" was used in your book, and that um, mentality not only was taken by the founding fathers but also modern day figures oh, like our much. like our educators and i, I wonder if we could if we could go to the very first part of your book where you note that the american slave trade trade was quote marked by amateurism and improvisation and can you talk more about this and the economic pressures of the 1640s that led new england specifically to get involved in the slave trade
1: Certainly. So one of the, one of the things that you know, as as I began to really uh, sort of take in this whole topic, is that it became very obvious to me that the American slave trade, you know, anything really that runs for two hundred years is going to undergo a lot of changes, you know, over those two hundred years. So I began to look very carefully at the the very earliest uh, you know era of of the American slave trade, uh, which is really the seventeenth century. It starts in about the middle of the seventeenth century, it goes to roughly the end. Um, and this is something uh, again. You know, I think historians have been well aware uh, that a certain number of slave ships came out of uh, you know North American ports in the second half of the 17th century, um, but there, I don't think all of them fully appreciated. You know, just <laughs> I would say how difficult the slave trade really was to carry on. Um, uh, there's often an assumption that slave trading is—it was—somehow a very simple and easy process that you just load up a ship with a bunch of junk and and just you know sail it to Africa and and you know, take your pick of, of captives and everything. But that's not at all the case. You know, slave trading is a very very difficult thing to do. Um, and what's happening in the 17th century in in North America is there are some people who are saying, well, this might be something I'd like to get involved in. There's obviously a lot of profit. Uh, you can earn bills of exchange, uh, which are very valuable if you need to pay debts uh, in uh, in Britain. And uh, so a couple of people at different various times, scattered individuals, fit out slave ships and sent them to Africa. The problem was that, um, as I said, slave trading is not easy. It's extremely difficult. It requires a lot of knowledge, experience in the trade. You have to know particular parts of Africa. You have to understand what those, uh, what goods uh, are, are, are in demand in those markets. So a lot of different things to deal with, and uh, and and by and large, these these early slave traders knew none of it. Um, they were they were fitting out ships and they were sending to Africa, and some of them didn't even seem to want to trade. Um, in, 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 in a few cases, people just went to Africa and and abducted people, tried to abduct people, and that's a very very difficult thing to do. Um, it's uh, because uh, contrary, again, to a lot of, a lot of myths, um, Africans were militarily powerful. They, you know, they, they did not stand by uh, to let themselves become abducted, not, at least on a large scale. Um, so you have these amateurs sort of going to Africa, blundering into all kinds of situations, um, not knowing what's going on, probably not making very much money at this. Um, There's another sort of uh, group that, that goes off and to trade with pirates uh, in the, uh, in the uh, Madagascar. Um, but all of this, what I suggest in the book, kind of adds up to a kind of, you know, these, yes, there's slave trading activity, but it's not really going anywhere. You, a lot of these things are failures. Um, and and nobody's really gaining much experience. The other thing you see, especially with the New Englanders in the 17th century, is most of them don't. If they try slave trading once, they usually don't try twice. <laughs> And that means that they don't bank any of this experience. So this goes on for a good half century. And that's that's the sort of amateurism that I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I definitely would like to return to, you know, the main ports that you talk about in Rhode Island. But first I want to to ask about the ways in which these information networks did build up. Um, and you you move from in the book, slavers as settlers to slavers as outlaws, and kind of tracing the beginning and end of the criminality of the trade. But you have a section on slavers as Bretons. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how the social clubs in this section really positioned Newport as the center of you know, the North American slave trade, and in turn led to the creation of what you had mentioned before as rum men?
1: Yeah. So as, as you're saying, uh, Newport, uh, Rhode Island, became in essence the capital uh, of the American slave trade, and it, it stayed that way for most of the 18th century. Uh, certainly, Rhode Island uh, was you know was the capital, but Newport was the most important city of, in Rhode Island. Um, and an interesting thing happened after after you know a good half century or more, or more than a half century, I would say, of sort of these these fumbling, bumbling. Um, Slave trading expeditions mounted, you know, it's kind of sporadically uh, by by different merchants. Um, starting in around the 1730s, uh, Newporters in Rhode Island began to send out a lot more vessels. And the book talks a little bit about why Newport and why the 1730s. And the suggestion is, you know, the, the Rhode Islanders are kind of driven into the slave trade because they're hemmed in by Boston. And so the slave trading is kind of a way for them. It's a trade they can get into that isn't gonna be dominated by Bostonians that might uh, earn them uh, a, a bit of uh, money. And, uh, and then the 1730s, there's through a odd set of circumstances, there's a kind of monetary expansion in Rhode Island that helps to finance all of this. So then a result is a lot more ships going out. And what I suggest is, once you once you sort of reach that, um, break that cycle of just sort of one unprofitable voyage after another. Once you get into a, a regular slave trade, what begins to happen are a lot of different things. Networks begin to form. Captains gain experience. Merchants begin to, uh, if they're engaged in a kind of continuous trade with uh, in, in, in captives with particular parts of Africa, they get to know those parts of Africa a little bit better. What kinds of things are in demand? What season's the best season to go? Um, Individuals, uh, individual traders on the coast that they might be able to do business with and and so on. And this, so the cycle gets broken and the new porters are the ones who do it. And interestingly enough, um, you're referring to a a kind of a a social club that was formed by, by ship captains. Uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, in in and around uh, the middle of the 18th century, and one of the things I noticed about this uh, club is that it had a lot of uh, slave ship captains uh, in it as members. Um, and it seems one of the other things the club, uh, you know, it did a lot of different things. But one of the things that it, it, it had in its its charter was that captains members should share information. Uh, about the various trades that they're in. So we don't actually have the records of what information was shared, but almost certainly it's, it's that kind of club and that critical mass of, um, of experienced captains and experienced merchants made Newport into, uh, the, uh, the capital of the American slave trade. The other thing that's happening, of course, is there's a second generation being kind of brought into the trade, younger men who are, Sail as mates, who were later later become captains, uh, and so forth. So Newport kind of begins that process and becomes self perpetuating, um, because Newport's not a huge, it's not Boston, it's not New York, yet it becomes this uh, this uh, major center.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really fascinated by the ways um, in in which the profits from both the the slave trade and, and also from the plantation goods made its way back into the different financial institutions of of Rhode Island. And I want to talk about that later, which because you kind of mentioned that in the the, the latter half of the book. And in this book, I think you do a really great job of looking, you know, taking a wide angle look at these larger changing economies over over a 200 year period. But you also look at personal narratives to really unpack the violence and, and harm of this trade. And you do both. And there is a claim in the book. Uh, That there's no understanding of American slavery without understanding and without a deep engagement of African history. And I'm wondering if you can talk about this section, how you kind of blend this wide angle look with more of the personal narratives. And also you you mentioned really, you know, interesting things in this section, how African nations withdrew from the slave trade for various reasons at its history because of, you know, imperial politics and climate change, which was an interesting point that you had noted. And you know, can you talk a little bit more about this section, how you formatted it, and also how it how it balances and both of the aspects of the book?
1: Sure. Um, yeah. Thanks. Uh, the um, so w- one of the things, just on the question of the the need to, uh, to to take African history very very seriously, as I do say in the in the book, and I really believe that there there you cannot make any sense of the transatlantic slave trade uh, without doing this. Um, the transatlantic slave trade went on for 400 years. Uh, it's it's uh, the, the the areas of Africa that were involved in the transatlantic slave trade shifted uh, over time. Sometimes they shifted year by year. <laughs> um, you know, one year or some some port might be very very active, and then due to circumstances, uh, it, the next year maybe not. Um, and uh, and so. Uh, the tendency, of course, for you know the old in the older literature on the slave trade, and I'm certainly not alone in, in kind of stressing these factors now, um, but in a lot of the older literature on the slave trade, what you really kind of had was, you know, I, I always think of the um, the great the graphs that we all uh, are familiar with, you know, from our textbooks and the like, just showing these growing, growing numbers of of, of captives uh, being brought out of Africa, and eventually, of course, it, it goes down as the slave trades. Uh, abolished. Um, and and none of that really helps us to understand these changes in time and these changes in space. And I think maybe even more seriously, um, to to kind of picture the slave trade in that way without without uh, getting into African history is to just, you know perpetuate that this very, very problematic idea of Africa as a place. Uh, is this undifferentiated, unknowable mass, and Africans as people without history, people without states, and the like. Um, so, um, as it happens, if you if you actually you know do the work, and 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 here I I really would want to credit uh, m- several generations of African and Africanist history historians that that I learned from. Uh, and and made use of it in order to uh, to explore this topic, um, but um, if you if you really really engage with it, you you just start to really so many different things come into focus, and and I think one of the things that you know that I really believe about this is that you know although it's certainly the case that European demand for captives increased the number of people who were delivered uh, to the coast uh, to be carried into slavery. Um, there's also no doubt in my mind that most of the mechanisms of supply just weren't in their control. So, uh, in the control of Europeans, they were they were they they, they were subject to factors uh, in Africa. And um, once you once you sort of get that idea, you, you you really sort of let that percolate in your mind. The slave trade has a very very different look. It's less about Europeans putting one over on on guileless Africans, it becomes much more sort of a contest, sometimes a violent contest uh, between uh, merchants uh, and the like. And some of the the, the granular details starts to come out as to why the slave trade surges at this moment in this place Maybe dries up somewhere else, and, and and Claire, you were referring to. So one of the really intriguing moments in all of this for me uh, was uh, the the drop in the number of captives who were made available for sale in what's now Senegambia. and this, you know, seems almost entirely due to a major sort of. Um, Islamic rebellion that was convulsing the region in the 1770s, 1780s is the Futa Toro, creation of the Futa Toro state. And the Futa Toro state was a Muslim state that, uh, you know, argued that uh, people should not, you know, enslaved people should not be sold to Christians, right? Uh, it was not arguing against slavery. It was saying that, you know, enslaved uh, Africans and especially Muslims should never be sold. Uh, to Christians. And actually, they, you know, the, the Putetoro state wielded a fair amount of power, especially on the Senegal River, um, and was, you know, I argue, reasonably successful at kind of really cutting off uh, one stream uh, of captives and forcing the Americans to go uh, to, to other places. They didn't always understand why this was happening, but they, they were certainly well aware when they noticed uh, the number of uh, captives available at the coast had dropped. Um, so those are just some of the things. I mean, there are many other examples that that we could look at, but um, that's just one way to kind of uh, argue this. Um, I think you also asked a moment about the uh, some of the narratives that I use, um, and so I I was been for a number of years part of a couple of different projects that collected narratives of Africans who were enslaved in the era of the slave trade, um, and I. Um, I I think these are very, very valuable. They're they're difficult documents to work with because almost all of them were elicited, um, you know, under uh, you know by whites uh, for other purposes, and and you can sometimes in these narratives it can be very difficult to separate a kind of you know the, the the voice of a a white person from the voice of the enslaved person. But I nevertheless argue these are extremely important because. Um, there's certain things that um, can only, certain bits of information can only come to us from people who were enslaved. So for example, to the basic question of how a person might, might lose their freedom in Africa. We're, we're all accustomed, if you read a lot of the basic texts on this, what you usually get is kind of a taxonomy of, you know, it'll say war captivity, it'll say conviction of a crime, it might say debt, uh, and so on, kidnapping, abduction by by somebody. Um, but if you want to get beyond just these these general categories, these you know, well, there are four basic paths that that you know led people into uh, captivity. Um, the only way to get around that is to actually look at things like these these narratives or testimonies, because um, Europeans and Americans, for those part, white Americans, didn't care. How a person became enslaved. What mattered to them was that person was enslaved, and and could be carried across the ocean. Um, they didn't ask a whole lot of questions, um, and so we don't know. You know, from from them, they'll never tell you those. You know, slave trader documents will never tell you how people became enslaved, but enslaved people will, um, you know, uh, in some way or another. And so I used quite a lot of these to explore um, how. The path that people took um, from losing their freedom in Africa to finding themselves in the hold of an American slave ship, and then uh, being brought uh, across uh, the Caribbean. And uh, I, I, I think it also adds uh, maybe a slightly more personal touch to this. So very often we we talk about this process in the kind of aggregate, uh, and I like to use the narratives. Um, you know, there, I, th- I think about each one. You know, very very carefully and. Their stories are very evocative. Um, So I I tried to work as many as I could into the book.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating. I think from the beginning of your answer, um, talking about the changing religious politics in places like modern day Senegal, that I think that really, like you said, adds more granularity to this story. And I wanted to mention that you begin and end the book with a man named Robert. And this this is one of the stories that is continuous throughout the book. Can you talk more about about his story and and how you um, maybe came came across his story as well?
1: Sure that's that's a that's a story actually. I, <laughs> um, uh, I Robert um, I didn't when I first came. This comes from a narrative. I, I should clarify, and it's a narrative that's been published uh, a little bit. It's, it wasn't a completely unknown uh, narrative. Um, but it's one that um, I think is maybe a little lesser known um, to a lot of people um, and uh, I knew it very well. Um, it's, it was very, one reason why I gravitated toward it is because this narrative is one of the very, very few uh, narratives left by a person that we know uh, was carried to the Americas aboard an American slave ship. So a lot of the more famous narratives um, that people might know of, of, of Africans. Um, many of them, most of them, if they came to North America, they arrived like most Africans aboard British slave ships. In some cases, we have uh, narratives from people who arrived aboard intercolonial or inter-American uh, slave ships. So, so Roberts was one of just a, a very few where I knew this person had arrived in an American slave ship. He left some wonderful details, so we we can identify he knew the name of the captain of the ship. Um, and of course, uh, he tells a very, very harrowing story. He was, he was uh, grabbed by, uh, is essentially kind of abducted uh, in Africa in what's now, it's Upper Guinea, probably somewhere in, near Sierra Leone or Liberia. And he was brought uh, to the coast in what's now Sierra Leone. And he was uh, carried to Savannah, Georgia, where he was held in slavery, uh, but he he witnessed an absolutely atrocious uh, crime, a, a just a wanton murder uh, of, of an enslaved woman. Um, so it's a very unsettling uh, narrative. I had known about this narrative for years and had in the back of my mind kind of said, oh, I might, I'll probably use this in the book just because it's one of the few where I really know this person was on an American ship. Then I started doing, uh wondered if I could get it, find any other, other information on uh, on this person who was unnamed in the narrative, I should say. He told his story at a, at an anti-slavery Congress in Boston, uh, but he was just referred to as Mr. Johnson. And so, um, well, of all things, I, I went to uh, ancestry.com, <laughs> if you can. Putting in what I knew in Boston, and uh, and I, I was able to identify him pretty quickly uh, as a man named Robert Johnson. Um, I later found out that my friend Randy Sparks had written a whole biography of Robert Johnson, so uh, that was helpful too. I but I did this parallel on my own. I want I want credit for, for that. Um, anyway, it does it was interesting to follow Robert Johnson's life. So I mean, I knew his story of enslavement. I knew. What he had gone through and witnessed uh, in slavery in Georgia, he was later brought up. He spent time in Philadelphia. He was ultimately freed, and uh, was spent most of the rest of his life in the Boston area. Um, but it was interesting. I was able to find out, you know, see who he married, uh, watch, see, get the names of his children, and uh, and even found out that he'd been involved in. Well, we knew already, of course, he'd been involved in anti-slavery activities. He. Um, Worked as a, as a doctor or a healer of some kind. Um, but what I suggest about Robert is that, you know, if we look at his biography, um, Robert Johnson, one of, one of the arguments I make in the book is that slavery is really about um, extinguishing ties of kinship. That in slavery means that it, as an enslaved person is a person who has no right to kin. Um, and of course, that's what happened to Robert. I mean, he was deprived of that right. And then he he you know, and he he got it back, of course, when he gained his freedom, and you can kind of see this in the naming. Uh, you know, he takes a surname; it's Johnson, right? Surnames speak to kinship, and he 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 passes on his name uh, to his children. His wife does as well, and so I sort of suggest that you know, in a lot of ways, the theme to his life, uh, certainly after slavery, was kind of reversing that process of, of, of kinlessness and building ties and, and links.
0: That's his, his story is so fascinating. And I think, you know, there are images of, in relation to, to your notion, to your, to your note on kinship, there are images in the book of slaving families, white slaving families, and kind of the the stark difference between that and the experience of many Africans in the slave trade um, is is very stark in the book, I think, as you're talking about it. And I think the uniqueness of Robert's experience being on an American slave ship kind of leads to my next question. Because the title of the book is American Slavers, but what counts as American is something, and what is American is something that, uh, you know, is contested throughout the book. And you have, you know, this this great statistic where two-fifths of the American slave trade you write, was undertaken in a period of unquestioned legality between 1712 and 1774. And then after 1776 is really where we get the Americanization of this, of the American slave trade as, as we know it. But, you know, can you tell us, uh, our readers, more about this period? What was this process of Americanization like? And I'm really interested in the ways in which, you know, the absence or presence of legal restrictions Impacted impacted this period.
1: Yeah, sure. So just to back up a little bit, um, you know, the slave trade, you know, through a lot of its history, is it has often been regulated, um, and it was by England uh, under you know under the Royal African Company charter, which gave that company a monopoly. And as you just mentioned, that so so the earliest American slave trading voyages essentially violated those restrictions. Um, and were therefore not really exactly legal. Um, in 1712, uh, Parliament threw open the British slave trade, and that suddenly meant if you were if you were a Briton, as as you know, American colonists were, um, you you could you could get into the slave trade. So that's where I'm saying there's no legal restriction; you just need a ship, and that goes on right up to the American Revolution. But during that time, um, the 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 Americans, though they're you know they're they're they're, they're located in the colonies. They're conducting their entire slave trade on British networks. They're, they're linked up with British merchants. They're going to British uh, uh, slave forts on the African coast. They're selling most of the captives in British markets, mostly in the Caribbean, but otherwise in, in North America, which is, of course, British, um, and, uh, and, and so, what happens starting in 1774? Um, suddenly, uh, the the congressional, uh, uh, the Continental Congress rather, um, declares a ban. You know, says we will no longer be sending slave ships out. And this is completely ineffective. Uh, that needs to be said, um, but it does lead to a process. Um, so after the American Revolution, slave trading got suspended during the American Revolution. There's none of that going on. But when when the American Revolution ended and peace returned in roughly 1783, uh, the Americans um, were shut out of the British Empire. So the old way of slave trading uh, in which you went to a British fort, say on the Gold Coast, and you carried the captives to a place like Barbados, that didn't work anymore um, because the Americans were outside of the mercantilist framework of the British Empire. And so I, I, what I suggest happened is that the slave trade, it, it, it continued. In fact, it, it it even sort of reached new heights uh, in this period, um, but it, it it became Americanized and it was less centered on, on the British empire. So for example, uh, American slave traders began going to different parts of Africa um, and trying to find other places as they were, they were both priced out and kind of, Pushed out of, of places like the Gold Coast, which is where they'd been uh, going for so long. Um, and, and they were no longer really able to carry captives back to the British Caribbean. So they began selling. You know, this, is, this is the period where more of them are going to be uh, brought to the continental United States. But Cuba uh, emerged as a major, major market here. Um, Americans, other other little details, um, before the American Revolution, most slavers would buy their insurance in Britain. After the American Revolution, they developed their own uh, insurance uh, companies and insured through there. And all of this, as I, as I suggest, kind of falls under the heading of, of an Americanization of the American slave trade. Throughout all of it, um, there there are there's a kind of escalating regulation of the American slave trade. So, as probably a lot of people will realize, um, under the U.S. Constitution of 1787, um, Congress was not allowed to prohibit the slave trade into the United States until January 1st, 1808. So, what what, what wasn't necessarily happening for a lot of years is that it was not a blanket ban on all slave trading. But what Congress did do is it it passed a series of laws that kind of tightened up slave trading. So, for example, in 1794, Congress said you can no longer carry American ships can no longer carry uh, captives to other countries they have if you're going to do this, they they have to come into the United States. And of course, you can't close the door until 1808. Um, Those laws were basically ineffective Uh, slave trading, as I say, hit hit new heights through all of this, Um, but um, uh but it, it it was there and the, the in a sense the kind of the door was sort of closing and it finally did shut uh for good on uh January 1st, 1808.
0: Right. I think and I think you know the, the question of, of what is American in this story really develops and I think that for me it was it was also interesting your use of what at least what remains of the physical aspects of um the slave trade. I think you had mentioned there are certain monuments that kind of memorialize those who have either died. I, I think this the 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 American slavers who died yes. as well. and um also the boats that th- these boats were American or they were not American. Uh, and that's that's also fascinating
1: yes yes i mean the thing the, the tr- one tricky thing with the slave trade in general is that it by its nature it's kind of transnational <laughs> and always is so it can be a kind of a slippery process to just say you know to, to kind of pin things down defining and for example to try to define an american slave ship you know is is an american slave ship a ship that's owned by americans that leaves from an american port Uh, Can an American slave ship be just a ship that was built in the United States and sold to somebody else? Is it an American slave ship if it's, uh, you know, it has a kind of false or straw owner who is American and perhaps a false flag where the real owners may come from somewhere else. So all these things would, especially in in, in the post 1808 era, these things, all these factors would come into play. And it makes it very, very difficult uh, to to define uh, American slave ship. Um, trust me, it's, <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> um, y- yes, uh, and even the nationality of the people uh, who, who sail on these ships, um, especially again after 1808 in the illegal period can be very, very hard to pin down. They're born in one place, they grow up in another place, they move, they acquire new citizenship, they change their names. <laughs> they they engage, you know, at this point, it's everything's illegal. so it's this is criminal activity, but they're they're engaged in various frauds. Um, so it can be really uh, hard to pin down. That's a very, very slippery one there. I, I I can only say I just try to do my best with it,, uh, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of uncertainty
0: and and you you do a great job in in this history. It's very comprehensive. And I would like to turn to your mention of Cuban ports in this era of slavers as as criminals Um, in this, as how it's categorized in the book, right? And part of the great allure of this book is that there uh, is your use of archival documents. And you mentioned, you know, that there are do- there were documents in Cuban archives that had limited access. Can you talk more about your archival process and were there any major breakthroughs in, in the archive?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um. So I had for this book. I'd written another book uh, on uh, on a slave ship, and and it was it was one that sailed in the middle of the eighteenth century. Um, uh, and um, during the course of of writing that book, I went through I think pretty much every major collection uh, in the United States on the eighteenth century slave trade. Um, and I did that just to get the kind of the background, even though I was writing about one ship. I, I really wanted to know it all. Um, I think I naively thought that <laughs> I, I, I was finished, <laughs> that I, I only had to add a little bit on the 19th century, and you know, I was completely wrong about that. Um, the, big, the big archival kind of moment uh, for me came after I moved from the United States uh, to the UK, uh, where I live now. And I uh, began, it dawned on me at one point, not too long after I moved here, that there just must be a lot of American slave ship records in the British National Archives. Uh, and simply because Britannia ruled the waves and I knew that there were various moments in the in history, especially after the American Revolution in the 1790s, first decade of the 19th century and beyond, when uh, when the, the Royal Navy for, for various political reasons and other, Reasons would be would be capturing American ships. I, I knew there were lots of them captured, and I knew some of them had to be slave ships. So I eventually figured out how to search the catalog properly, <laughs> and I began pulling up. I really hit pay dirt. Um, I, I don't know the number; it's probably in the neighborhood of two dozen. Um, but I uh, ships, but um, maybe two, between possibly three dozen, but I think closer to two dozen uh, ships uh, whose records were in the archives here in the UK that I was able to go through. And these hadn't really been gone through uh, by American historians. And um, not just because they were here in Britain, but also because they were almost impossible to, they weren't really cataloged. And so I kind of, I lucked out in that there was a bit of a cataloging effort going on while I was doing this that allowed me to find the materials. And what this did is it opened, uh, shed light on periods of the American slave trade that had been just kind of a little bit more obscure. We had a lot of documentation for the colonial period in the United States, and these are the collections I was referring to a moment ago. What we were really lacking were collections for uh, good sh- collections of ships, papers, and the like for the you know post-revolutionary period all the way up to 1808. And, and what happened is that these collections from the British National Archives just allowed me Uh, to address that period in in much greater detail than other historians have been able to do. And then of course, after 1808, in the the illegal era, um, the Royal Navy patrolled to try to enforce uh, anti-slave trade treaties and legislation. And they picked up various ships. Um, Some some of them were American, but increasingly over the years, um, Americans shifted most of their activity to Cuba And so a lot of the ships that got captured by the Royal Navy were were Spanish ships that had sailed from Cuba, but with American involvement. And so if you look at through those records, you find Americans serving in some capacity or another, maybe as a false captain or or maybe as a supercargo in some cases. Um, And so I was, I think, I think, you know, had a lot of luck in the archives in various places, but being able to get this material out of the British archives. I think really helped me make the book in in so many ways,
0: and and the Cuban archives were were also connected to to the British archives. You could access the Cuban archives through through the British program
1: in a very very limited way. Um, so um, the uh, I wasn't able to go to Cuba uh, to do research, and that's probably my biggest regret. I'm I'm working on it uh, at the moment, <laughs> but um, they. Um, the British Library runs uh, what's called an endangered archives project, and so they had a little bit of luck uh, with that because there had been teams uh, who, as part of that project, had gone to Cuba and had photographed entire archives uh, in places like Matanzas, which was uh, sort of a major in a major plantation region. It's a it's a city east of Havana um, that was that was very involved in in the illegal. Uh, slave trade. So I was able to get some documents out of that. Um, I, good friends were, you know, Cuban researchers was able to make use of, of their material. They're also I should say, again, giving credit where credit's due to. Um, Cuban historians have really begun to pick up uh, the history of, of the slave trade. And uh, I was kind of lucky in that in the last couple of years, some very, very good books came out of the Cuban. Uh, Out of Cuban uh, historian, written by Cuban historians, and uh, one feature of some of these books is that they published a lot of primary source uh, materials, uh, which I don't think, uh, you know, certainly people outside Cuba hadn't hadn't seen before. So I was able to kind of fill some gaps, Um, but um, unfortunately, I was never able to have the run of the Cuban archives, which is what I would really have liked.
0: Right. And, and this project, in some way can be ongoing. <laughs> yes, in <that> way. and <laughs> never ending, we'll call it never. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. And, uh, and, it, you know, it is, it is so great that the the, the British National Archives shed light on some of these more obscure periods. And you mentioned in the in the book that there are some statistics, when looking at the American slave trade in its global context that also obscure some of the impacts of, of the slave trade and and one of those impacts is is its connection to the plantation crops that then kind of contributed to not i guess uh, you had mentioned that the actual slave trading didn't necessarily contribute to the national economy but local economies and and in in the larger scope the national economy was impacted by these crops that came from the labor force and you know and and how this money in made its way into in institutions that we know now you know banking uh, banking institutions, universities. And, you know, I'm I'm wondering where where does this book leave us in reckoning with America as a slaving nation?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it, you know, it's it's a tricky thing with this because um again, you know, one of the one of the things I kind of wrestle with in that in, in the conclusion of the book and offering a final sort of assessment of 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 what it all means and, and what the significance was. Is this uh, statistic that I repeat a bunch of times in there? It's 2.4 percent, and that that represents the total number of of a proportion of the total transatlantic slave trade that you know uh, belonged to the Americans. You know, American slave ships carried only 2.4 percent of all of the uh, Africans who crossed the ocean. So on the one hand, you can look at that and you can say, "Oh well, you know, there's nothing to see here." You know, it's you know it's kind of like my high school teacher saying, you know. Um, Well, the Americans weren't really involved in it, were they? Um, But what I try to suggest is, you know, you really, really, really need to put that number in perspective, and you need to realize most American involvement took place within about a 75, 80-year period, so it's concentrated in a way that, you know, say, the Portuguese slave trade isn't. Portuguese slave trade stretches over centuries. Um, And as you mentioned, of course, it's concentrated geographically within the United States in in New England, but really in Rhode Island, and really, really in uh, Newport, uh, Rhode Island. Um, now, the tricky thing there. So, so what I suggest in the book is, you know, yes, yes, it can, of course it contributes, uh, you know, capital and 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 the like to to the American economy. There's no question about that. But you do have to kind of. Uh, weigh it geographically and uh I, I do suggest that it you know at least within this within the colony or state of rhode island and especially within newport um, it was quite significant um one of the interesting things uh that i do elsewhere in the book is you know i i look at um the wealth that slave traders accumulated and in what what forms it took Um, And one of the interesting things that you see is, uh, this comes through in things like wills and probating experiences, but a lot of these slave traders, especially after the American Revolution, are very well integrated into sort of the larger national financial system. They own bank stock. They own stock in things like the Bank of the United States. Um, They buy insurance policies uh, and so forth. So, So there's no question that some portion of the capital that went into those institutions came from slave traders and, and, and from the slave trade. The question that's really probably impossible to answer is how much, because to, to answer that, you'd need a much more thorough uh, financial record than, than we actually have. Um, but if you think about, you know, the, the lar- again, on the theme of the larger economic importance of the, the American uh, slave trade, um, yes, I do suggest that, um, that probably, you know, the, the actual profits from the slave trade itself, I mean, they were significant, but not uh, not on a national level. But there is one very, very important contribution, uh, I think, an extremely you know, large-scale contribution, and that was a particular moment uh, between 1804 and 1807. Um, And this is the exception to the generalization that most American slave ships carried their captives to the Caribbean. Between 1804 and 1807, this this was a period where American slave traders were trying desperately to to kind of bring as many captives as possible into, specifically into South Carolina, before the close of the legal slave trade uh, in 1808. And it, it appears that about seventeen percent of all of the captives who entered North America you know through the years arrived in just those that, that, that four year period and most of those about two thirds of those uh, were carried by american slave ships and this you know it's tens of thousands of people and and this i think I think it's over forty thousand people, and this became um the, the labor force for the eventual cotton kingdom, because this, this influx coincided with and was designed to serve the cotton boom of the early 19th century. And so American slave ships delivered a large portion of that very, very early labor force for the cotton kingdom, which would of course eventually become a major um, driver of, of American exports.
0: Yeah, th- thanks for going over some of the the ending, you know, your, the wrap up of of the book, which I think is really important, um, for for thinking about this book as a way for all of us to reckon with with America as a slaving nation, and as we come to the end of our conversation today, do you have anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with our listeners about this new book?
1: Um, I think you know the the main thing that I would say is that um. A lot of people, and I've, I've, I say this having had conversations with a lot of very, very well-informed people, would be to say again that this this story just strangely never got told. <laughs> um, a lot of very well-informed people, and I, I was one of them. Uh, you know, uh, certainly before I, I began uh, working in this, just don't aren't, aren't really aware that this took place. The scale. Uh, on which it took place they, they don't know they, the, the um, two hundred years of involvement in the slave trade is a very, very long time. So this to me is 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 a very, very important chapter in the history of American slavery and uh, in 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 American history um, for two hundred years, uh, Americans organized slave trading voyages um, and uh, you know, we, we don't think of it a whole lot. We tend to, again, American historians tend to, uh, when they're when they're thinking about the slave trade, they think of it only as this process that delivered people uh, into the United States into slavery in, in the United States, and we forget that several hundred thousand people, uh, you know, were, were were trafficked, you know, by Americans to other places. Um, so I guess that's the that's the the main. You know, thought that I'd i leave people with.
0: Yeah, th- thanks so much for for being here today to really talk about this history that, as you've mentioned, has been um, untold in 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 its various complexities and, and granularities. And I'm I'm really excited to to have our listeners go check out the book um, because it really does correct so many misconceptions about. American slavers and and leaves but also leaves no misconceptions about and no doubt that Americans were a nation of slave traders so thank you for joining us today
1: thank you very much Claire
0: American slavers merchants mariners and the transatlantic commerce in captives 1644 to 1865 is now available wherever books are sold thank you so much for listening Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.